Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. I'm Nancy Grace, and this is Bloodline Detectives. I saw Jodine on the bed with a man on top of her. The hunt is on for who did it. When heinous crimes go unsolved and communities lose hope justice will ever be served, sometimes all that's needed is a little more time and a lot of ingenuity. They were able to, with scientific advances and forensic technology, take the evidence that they had and do new things with it. I run my software looking for matches in the genetic genealogy databases, and the match will give me a probable last name for the killer. Meet the men and women who master the newest science to solve cold cases once thought unsolvable, bringing closure to loved ones who have given up on the system every week on Bloodline Detectives. Hello and welcome to episode 194 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. And this is a very special episode. I am joined this week by the one and only true crime queen, and that is Miss Nancy Grace. Welcome to the show, Miss Grace. Wow, it's an honor for me to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And sadly, for both you and myself, there's never a lack of business, is there? No, there is not. And unfortunately, that goes with the title of my show. It is sort of, uh, there's always somebody in the crosshairs, and that is uh, unfortunate. And, uh, you know, one of the things that you do such a good job of keeping a focus on, and that's a lot of the cases that kind of fall through the cracks and whatnot, but uh, but what brings you on the show today, Nancy? Well, first of all, let me... Objection! Because nope. I don't necessarily think cases fall through the cracks. I think somebody screws up whether a crime scene is not properly uh, processed, whether a victim's family is ignored, I think that somewhere where the neighbors don't notice something horrible is happening, like in the, like here's an example, like the House of Horrors, the Turpin family. What, the notice, the neighbors didn't notice? There are 11 children in there, and they've never seen them outside? Really? Because I would notice that. Um, it's or, or teachers at school that don't notice bruises, or you hear a gunshot at 3 a.m. and you don't call 911. Those are intentional acts of omission. Now, are they prosecutable? No. But in my mind, cases don't just fall through the cracks. Somebody makes a fail. All right. Uh, why am I here? I am here, ostensibly, for an incredible program that I love. And it's the Bloodline Detectives. Uh, we're heading into season three and season two. It's now streaming. 
Um, it's also still on linear television. Bloodline Detectives, um, here's a little story, true story. I think it was the sixth grade. We were in science class, and I had my page open. And the teacher said, go to page, let's just pretend, 43. And I looked at this uh, in bold scientific term. And I remember this moment. I thought, well, you know, one day I'm going to need to know how to pronounce this. So that was in the sixth grade. So 20 plus years later, when I get out of law school, I needed to be able to have this phrase trip off my tongue. Deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA. Interesting story, right? That is extremely interesting and very, uh, uh, I guess... Prophetic. Prophetic, yeah. Uh, wow. Bloodline Detectives <laughs> is all about the unsung heroes that are cracking cases 5, 10, 20, 60 years later. And I can tell you as a crime victim myself, Resolution to the case does not give closure. There's no such thing as closure when your life has been ripped to shreds by violent crime. But it does allow you to move to the next stage of grief. Uh, so many victims' families say their daughter, their son, their wife, their husband go missing. They don't have an answer. Or the person is murdered. And the case isn't solved. You can't start healing while you're still on a quest for justice, while you're fighting every day to put up flyers, call the cops, you know, look for leads. It's just, it's excruciating. And I've dealt with a lot of families who still don't have answers. Bloodline Detectives uh, is the next generation of cracking cases through forensics. And very often when I analyze a case, it's just a sentence or two about DNA here we get to delve into the intricacies of how cold cases are cracked and violent offenders are brought to justice. I couldn't be happier. That's so interesting because it actually makes me uh, jump to a question I was going to ask you later. And that is, you know, what was what was one of the things that really got you interested in this type of you know field? And I think you pretty much just answered it. <laughs> uh, being in sixth yeah. grade and recognizing that DNA is going to be something that you need to know. And then now you're able to apply it to, you know, bloodline but detectives. It's amazing. A sixth grade science class did not lead me to become a felony prosecutor. No. I became a prosecutor uh, after my fiance was murdered. Tragic. And uh, I dropped out of college where I was studying Shakespearean literature. I lost down to 89 pounds. I couldn't eat. I couldn't think. It was just horrible. And uh, at some point, I got a glimmer of another life. And I went back to college, finished, and went to law school with the sole purpose of becoming a felony prosecutor to help other crime victims. And I'm not whining, poor, poor, pitiful me. I see myself more of a survivor. There are other people that have suffered so, oh gosh, no comparison to what I suffered, such as parents who lose child. Uh, it's, it's brutal. And solving the cases, bringing the offender to justice, is the first step 
in that family or that victim, like a rape victim or child molestation victim, it's the first step in them being able to move forward in some capacity. That's it's yeah, it's that's incredible, and you know it. it in your line of work, and you know, when you decided to become a prosecutor, I mean, you took a whole different, you know, path in your life. And how much has changed as far as fighting crime goes? I mean, think about as far as technology. I mean, how for compared to when you had begun? <laughs> That's a good question because fighting crime is, in my mind, very much the same as it has been for decades. It takes a lot of hard, hard work, research, dedication. There's no such thing as office hours if you want to prove a case to a jury. As far as technology, such as forensics, it is light years beyond what it was when I was prosecuting, especially at the beginning. When I first started prosecuting, we didn't have DNA uh, expertise. I would prove rape and murder cases through fingerprints, hair samples, and blood type. And all I would be able to do with the blood type is say, well, the rapist had A positive and the defendant has A positive. Well, that's like a quarter of the population or more. So that didn't really help me that much. I had to be able to corroborate. Or if I got a hair, I could say, oh, this hair found in the victim's car belongs to the scene of the rape belongs to a white male. <laughs> well, okay, that's 50% of the population. Right. But, and I would have to corroborate it, corroborate it, corroborate it. Then I remember my first DNA case, I was enthralled with DNA, and I went to the crime lab, preparing for the trial. I said, listen, you bring me every screenshot, every film, everything you did. And they went, you want the, the pictures of the DNA? I'm like, yes! Well, I never did that again. Because they got the crime lab person up on the stand. I said, sir, or ma'am, it was a ma'am, I think. Ma'am, could you show the jury these, the screenshots, the actual film from the crime lab of your DNA comparison? Honey, they put, <laughs> they put up pictures. It looked like very badly developed uh, old-style old camera film that somebody ripped out of the camera. I'm like, okay, let's take that down right now. It looked like a series of dots. Now, to her, it made perfect sense. The jury was like, what, I'm going to convict on that? No, I'm not. Luckily, I did manage to convince the jury. I had the right perp. But <laughs> that was my first stab at uh, I mean, But by the end of the time, the 10-plus years I was prosecuting nothing but violent felonies, um, we had it down and could explain the statistics like there's one in a trillion that this is not the right guy. Okay, so it's him. Uh, DNA is very, very powerful, and bloodline detectives deals a lot with genetic genealogy. And in, here's a great example of that: um, the Golden State Killer, D'Angelo. May he rot in hell. Mm-hmm. He's a devil's minion um, who had raped and murdered for years and couldn't catch him, but they figured out through genetic genealogy, goes all the way back, you know, like uh, to your great, 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 great grandparents 100 years ago, and they trace down, and then they identify who was in that jurisdiction that is part of that family. Then they watch the person. They get their DNA off a coffee cup or a, you know, a 
a spoon or a pizza crust, compare it to the DNA at the scene, bam, that's how you do it. That is, uh, it's amazing. It's, it, it's, it's magic. I mean, to be, it's, it's just amazing how fast and how quickly in the last. I'm glad you said magic and not voodoo or I would reach right through this. Screen, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's one of those, um, you know, when I was a kid, I remember I just, yeah, trying to solve a case with blood types and fingerprints. It's like, you look back nowadays and the, all those things are easily, uh, overturned, you know, I mean, whoa, 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 what, what, what fingerprint case have you seen overturned? No, nah, I mean, didn't mean fingerprints. Sorry. I should, I should more have referred to like the hair samples or bite marks or some of the things that you, oh yeah, don't even say bite. Yeah. I don't do that anymore. Or right. Biting, uh, evidence is because, oh, here's a problem with bite marks. You know, you bite and flesh moves, Right. So you can't, unless you've got like vampire fangs or some odd tooth situation going on, one for me, it's hard to convince a jury based on a bite mark. Now, occasionally you have someone with a distinctive bite, but since the flesh is movable, it's not the same as like biting into, you know, a, a mold. So it's that's a tough sell. You're right about that. So right. Sure, and it, it's it's definitely it's not like going to the dentist where you you know getting your teeth mold for a crown or braces or something along yeah. those lines. It's far from, uh, in my opinion, scientific. Hence the term junk science in that one regard. But um, I think it's really interesting talking about your your career. What case stood out to you the most? Is for you talked about you're doing you know strictly violent offenses. What case never left you? Well, that's like asking me which child do I love the most. Well, I'm putting you on the spot then. Yes, then I've got an answer. Good. No case was more important than another. Uh, the case of Orenthal James Simpson is no more important to me than the case of Chucky Mock, a little boy who was shot on his bicycle in Warner Robins, Georgia, back in the 70s, still unsolved. Uh, Daniel Van Dam, kidnapped and murdered in California. Uh, Eton Pats in New York. They all stick with me. And I don't see how any person in their right mind could talk to victims' families or victims, in that case, not leave an indelible print on your heart and your mind. So no victim is more or less important than another victim. They're all important to me. It's a very poignant way of putting it, and definitely agree with you in that regard. And that also kind of opens up the question that I had for you originally when we started talking and that you'd mentioned talking, <clears throat> excuse me, with family members. And I have had the luxury of talking with Kelsey German of the Delphi murder investigation. Yeah. And she was unfortunate enough to lose her sister Libby and her friend Abby uh, to a killer in 2017. And you know, I was really just wondering what your thoughts were on that case because I've talked to her so much about it and I just thought you would be the most the respected person to ask. Well, 
as it relates to Liberty uh, German, age 14 at the time of her murder, and Abby Abigail Williams, who was age 13 at the time of her murder. I'm very concerned, and I will be blunt, because at this point I had hoped we would have a resolution in the case. I find it very, very difficult to believe there was not DNA found at the scene. We have what we believe to be a picture of the killer. We have sound of the voice of the killer because the girls had the wherewithal to record, we believe, the killer walking t toward them on a trestle bridge in Delphi, very, very small town, which really narrows down the number of potential suspects. But then they were taken down from the bridge and they were murdered. It's very hard for me to believe there's not DNA. So with a voice and the picture, we still haven't solved the case. I don't get it. Now, there are a couple really good leads, including one guy that was catfishing, who had been in touch with at least one, if not both, of the girls in the days preceding their murders, who was a complete pervert, who was using a male, a young, kind of a Justin Bieber lookalike model who has nothing to do with this case, didn't even know about it until he found out his, his photo had been pirated. The perv was using the Justin Bieber lookalike photo as his photo and was conversing with one or both of the girls, trying to set a meetup with them. And then, whoa, lo and behold, they're dead. That's a pretty strong lead. Then you've got another individual who was connected to the property at which they were found near the bridge, who I consider to be a really strong lead. You know, I, I, I'm not sure what the holdup is there, but it's excruciating for the family. And at this point, I mean, just recently, the local cops released more of the audio. Really? You've been holding back on that since, uh, let me think. February 13, 2017, obviously your case is going nowhere. I would release all the information I had in the hopes of catching the killer. As would I. I, I feel like there was so much information that was there for the taking and with their press conferences that they've held over the years, you felt like with each one they were like, oh, one step closer. And then all of a sudden, here we are again, four or five months since the latest press conference, and there has been nothing. And Same as nothing. I kept thinking, wow, are they just holding it close to the vest? But after five years, I don't know that that is what is happening anymore. No, and it's tragic. I mean, you, th you talked about how awful it is for families that have to go through that. Terrible. And I've spoken with her father or, you know, the, the grandfather yeah. and, and the people involved. And it is just it is something that they just continues to drag on. And, you know, and every time I speak to them or meet up with them, they still are holding out hope. But at some point, you know, you get exhausted hoping and working. And it's just like the weight of the world on your shoulders. And I pray that they will have a resolution very soon. You know, you had wanted to speak to me about um, another case, the Amy yep. Mahalovic case. That case, very, very disturbing. Um, Extremely. 
Her body was found all the way back in 1990. She's a 10-year-old little girl. And the irony in that case is that day in class, they had had someone speaking to the class about stranger danger. And that very day, she told her friends that she was going with a friend to pick out a gift for her mom's promotion. And she was never seen again. And believe it or not, not ever seen alive again. Believe it or not, um, let's see, that was in 1989. Her body was found four or five months later, just thrown by the side of the road, molested and murdered. I don't understand why we're not solving that. I think we need to call it the bloodline detectives, frankly. I'm very disturbed with the fact that this has not been solved. I believe that the police are on to a suspect. And I firmly believe if the correct DNA application was used, we may have an answer for this family. That is the number one case that got me started into this line of work because I was also 10 years old and lived uh, about three or four miles from where she was kidnapped. And so this was a case that was in was just part of my life and has continued to be a part of my life. And I have spoken with her father. I've spoken with the chief of police who spoke with her class that day. He was just a patrol officer at that time. And yeah, he, he did. He talked about stranger danger with the class. And, you know, the one weird thing that he had told me, you know, that wasn't really news at the, in 89 was that he had promised her, like, for, we have $45 or $44 to spend, and whatever we don't spend, we'll spend on you. And, you know, that gave her enough to drop her guard. And it's just so tragic to think that you had a whole community. A lot of FBI agents live in that community, so they were on the ball like right away and 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 nothing. I mean, we've had nothing and I'm glad that, to see that you believe that they're on to a suspect. I I really hope that they are. Uh I know when I interviewed the police the chief of police, he said that there wasn't a short list that he had. So, um I'm hoping that with the DNA technology like we talked about earlier, that that has gotten to the point where that they're able to do it correctly. And that was a big thing. Yes, exactly. And I'm specifically referring to the possibility of epithelial cells, which is touch DNA, because we know that um, a curtain of sorts had been yeah. found. And I'm just wondering if it will produce any DNA also, the fact that she died of strangulation would suggest, of course, either manual or ligature. And that would be very indicative of a possibility of epithelial cells being left behind on the neck. If yeah. that has been maintained and recovered at the beginning. Yeah, she, she did have a couple stab wounds in the side of her neck, so there is a belief that she did bleed out eventually. Um, so it's one of those cases that it's like her her underwear was inside out, so she apparently obviously had been redressed. Yes, and as awful as that is. And 
Well, there's another possibility on the DNA side, and that is labs such as, let me just throw out Othram, who specialize in contaminated or degenerating DNA. Um, That's their specialty. Maybe there's a chance with a lab like that, which is beyond the typical DNA analysis that is done in a crime lab. That's a specialty lab. So that may be a possibility. So the Amy um, Halibut case is foremost on my mind, along with, I believe you had an interest in the Springfield Three. Always interesting. Yeah, two teen girls that had gone to a graduation party that were spending the night at one house. Then there were too many uh, family and relatives at that house for graduation, so they went to another house that night around 2 a.m., but they didn't show up for a water park party the mm-hmm. following morning. And when everyone went to the home where they were staying, both girls, Suzanne and Stacy, were missing. And the mom, Suzanne's mom, Cheryl, missing. And they have never been found. And that happened all the way back, as I recall, back in 1992. It's, so, it's one of the weirdest cases ever because of all the facts that like they left their purses all lined up. Everything was just left perfectly like they had come home but then they never went to bed it's like somebody came in just took them away yeah but they clearly they had piled up the clothes they were wearing neatly in the corner folded them up and there were makeup wipes where they had taken off their makeup that night and that tells me that like everybody takes their makeup off at night that they were preparing to go to bed there was no struggle uh Obviously, in the home, their pocketbooks were all sitting together. Nothing was really taken. The, the only suggestion of a struggle was the globe on the front porch light had been broken. And that was swept uh, up by one of their friends. So, yes. like, you know, they didn't really have any evidence to really work with. And then there's also the, the voicemail message. I mean, voicemail, I say, but uh, back then it was answering machines. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you think about a answering machine message that literally could have solved this case got erased um now you've got a potential suspect who had recanted her alibi for him um again without any dna to at the scene it's going to be hard sure but that case has lingered for years and years in the Springfield, Missouri community where this happened. People still talk about the Springfield Three. And that is where uh, Bloodline detectives and experts like them take preeminence because they can crack cases based on scant DNA decades later. And I'm very de- dedicated to the program because it may jar someone's recollection about a case they've worked in the past that maybe we could get an answer on. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so incredibly hard to wrap your head around that there wouldn't be anything left behind in, in a case where three people were taken. There had to and be some sort of... the ability to subdue three people, one being an adult and two teens. How did you do that? Um, you know, that question arises with the Delphi case. How did you subdue two girls unless you had a gun or a knife? And you said, hey, Mom, I'm going to shoot your daughter if you don't get in the car with me. Right. Uh, I mean, 
Bars were parked there. Everything was as it should be, except everything was in place except them. Yeah, and I think that it's kind of like a through line through the three cases that we're kind of talking about is just sort of like the ability to control in multiple ways. I mean, we had one guy with the Amy case. He calls and lures her with a ruse. We have the Delphi girls who are lured away by the bridge man. And now we have the Springfield three who clearly they were taken, but there's nothing left behind. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. I mean, they're all so frustrating because it's, it's like somebody definitely knows something. I mean, nobody just takes three girls and you know, that reminds me of something um, in the jurisdiction where a prosecutor in city Atlanta. At that time, we were one of the murder capitals of the world, mostly drug murders. But when I inherited a courtroom out of a huge staff of prosecutors, there were 12, I think there were 12 superior courtrooms for felonies to be tried. And there would be 12 lead prosecutors out of a staff of, I don't know, 80 that were assigned to each of those courtrooms to run the state's business. And I remember when I inherited the courtroom, I got assigned to the courtroom to run the courtroom for the state. I got all the files. And in the back of the file cabinet, there was a handful of what we call cold cases. And I could tell they were cold because, you know, I'd have indictment number A, 15435A. Okay, but these would be like case number 2000. No A. You know, which means this is a really old case. And I would take them out and look at them and look at them and look at them. But every week I would have an onslaught of 150 new felonies to resolve correctly the right resolution, the true verdict. And cold cases get put on the back burner because of the huge, huge caseload. That is why every prosecutor, sheriff, police department needs a cold case unit for cases that cannot get the attention they deserve. Those cases deserve to be solved like every other case. I wholeheartedly believe that there should be a special department in... And that's where the legislature and the assembly comes in. They have to fund it. They do. Don't be fooled when you hear all these anti-crime measures. We're going to do this and this. If they don't fund it out of the budget, it doesn't exist. It's only on paper. Well, it's so, yeah, yeah. To me, it's like the same thing. They get you know they blame mental health for a lot of the things, and then they don't support mental health bills. And you know, it, it's just they don't it, fund them exactly. So they get voted back in because they passed this bill, but what the voter doesn't know is they didn't fund it. So it's just like me saying, well, my intention is to develop a cold case unit in every rural town in Georgia. But if I don't put any money toward it, it's never going to happen. It's just words, empty words. A lot of it is empty words and a lot of the time, unfortunately. And and I think in this particular world that we live in, I think Bill Thomas, who I'm sure you know from the Colonial Parkway murders. Yes. Uh you know, we had this interesting conversation and FBI agents are forced to retire at 57. And we talked about how we should, you know, they should get another extra five years to work. Hey, if you aren't ready to retire, why don't you come work these cold cases? Case, cold case. You know, they bring judges in that way. It's called uh, Judge Emeritus. Yes, judge absolutely. Has mandatory retirement age. 
uh, we often have them when there's a huge caseload to come back and preside over, you know, bail calendars or what we do, whatever, where they, you need help. And we definitely need that for cold case units. But you go and try to tell the politicians that, okay, ain't going to happen. So, <laughs> but what I can do is advocate for forensic technology. And that's why I love this particular program so much, Bloodline Detectives, is it brings awareness to real cases that are solved in our jurisdictions and really all over the world through advanced DNA technology. It's incredible. And we're getting ready for season three, and we are now streaming season two, and I'm really proud. And where can people find that? Online. Uh, at Bloodline Detectives in right. your local listings. It's syndicated, so it's on a different network and, you know, wherever you may be. The streaming is online at FilmRise, but you can find it by Google search. Cool. And where could people follow you? If Are you on Twitter and social media? Oh, my goodness. Uh, at Nancy Grace mm-hmm. on Facebook, Insta, Twitter. And we have our Crime Stories podcast, which you can get anywhere you download your, your podcast. It's also on SiriusXM, on iHeart, and at Fox Nation. If you want to see and hear at the same time, go to Fox Nation. If you're happy hearing it, there's so many alternatives to do that. And we are current day of programming. What case is happening now is what we cover on Crime Stories. And always have tip lines for people that believe they know or know someone that knows the answer or a tidbit about a case so we can help actually solve cases. That's incredible. It sounds like a great show, and it is a great show, and I hope everybody checks it out. Thank you for having me on today. Yes, and uh, thank you so much, um, Miss Nancy Grace, the queen of true crime media. You are on every platform in the world. And if they don't know who you are, then they're living under a rock. So uh, with that being said, thank you so much. Bye, friend. Wow, what a whirlwind. An opportunity to talk to the queen of true crime media. And that was the one and only Nancy Grace. Now you can find her show on filmrise.com online as well as it's on TV, Bloodline Detectives. Now, again, she also has a podcast. She's also all over Instagram and Twitter, so you can find her wherever you are checking out your social media. As you know, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can at BillHuffman3. And if you want to donate to the show, you can do that too. It is via Venmo, and that would be at Bill-Huffman-3. That's the number three. So thanks again to Nancy Grace and Evergreen Podcasts as well as FilmRise for making this happen. I appreciate it, and what a treat for all you guys. Thank you so much again to Nancy and all of her time, and so I hope all you guys continue to stay healthy and be safe. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. 
In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Mysteries.com